Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. From A&E, the creators of Cold Case Files, comes your next true crime podcast obsession, PD Stories. Every week, law enforcement professionals join host Tom Morris Jr. from America's Most Wanted and Live PD to share their experiences, insights, and perspective on policing. You're not going to want to miss this show. Be sure to subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcast apps so you can get new episodes every week. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Seth Partnow of The Athletic and longtime guest of the show, and we have a really interesting conversation started out with the trade deadline and a little bit on the strategic planning session series that he, Sam Vecini, and I are doing for The Athletic, and then we talk about Zion, uncertainty, a lot of other interesting topics over the course of the hour. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been uh, actually not that long this time. Yeah, a little bit over a month from what I could tell, and we had talked about doing something in relation kind of to the trade deadline, and where I wanted to start is this, I, I feel like I have this weird sense of stability right now with kind of how I see the title picture. And some of that is, you know, norms and where we you know, like my, where I came into the season thinking things and I'm, maybe I'm just relying too much on my priors, but I was wondering kind of, we don't need to spend a lot of time on how you see the picture. What I'm more interested in is how fluid you see it and what could change where you, where you kind of see the lines of division. I mean, I thought before the season that there were kind of four teams that were right there, and I think that that's largely what we've seen so far. I mean, you know, take or leave, uh, you know, Philly's been up and down, but I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this offline, but, like, Philly's been up and down in sort of the way that, you know, that was a pretty predictable way for them to be up and down, and they're still, uh, in terms of their their kind of high-end uh, possibilities against the best teams. I don't think we've seen anything to like downgrade that. And then, you know, the things have worked out a little bit better for the Lakers, a little bit worse for the Clippers than maybe we thought coming in, but they're, I think, um, fairly clearly the class of the West right now. And then, you know, the bucks are stomping everybody. So they, they, there's not really a lot they can do to answer what criticisms there are of them in the regular season. So, but they're just, you know, there is this, this, right, this, at this point, regular season juggernaut that, um, is, is positioned to have home court throughout the playoffs. So yeah, not, it's, it's almost like we're halfway through the season and nothing has changed in that regard. Yeah. And an overall thing for me is that we had some of these positive stories in the early going, you know, like Miami, maybe still 31 and 13 as we record this, which is a really good record. But I think we're seeing signs that they're very good, but not in that same caliber as the Bucks and the Sixers. And then sort of the same thing in the West, you know, the Rockets and Nuggets, partially due to health and especially in Denver's case, they've fallen off a bit. And so, yeah, I think the Lakers and Clippers are the class of class of the conference. And that could, you know, depending on structures uh, and different things that are involved, you could see that kind of a three and a half team top tier leading to an arms race at a trade deadline, depending on who's available. And that's something you and I have gotten into a little bit in our strategic planning session pieces. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I, they're, they're kind of, in order for a trade deadline to be really impactful, you need to not only have you need to have buyers, you need to have buyers with assets, and you need to have willing sellers. And I feel like we don't have enough of all three to make this the trade deadline that would be more fun and explosive. Yeah, yeah, we don't. There's not like the like the buyers that collectively don't have the draft assets because they used them all. And there aren't kind of the bad contracts floating around that, that can be used to sort of – uh, lubricate some of these deals that that uh, we've seen in the past. So it seems like uh, just because of how how short term a lot of the the contracts around the league are, if if for no other reason, it just seems it's been really hard. You know, you mentioned these strategic planning uh, pieces we've been doing. It's been really hard to, to come up with deals that make sense for both sides because you, you know 
there might be a mutuality of 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 interests but there then the, the mechanics of actually making it work just kind of aren't there it's also the case right now and I, I, there are different theories maybe on why this is the case that a lot of young players who could be the sweeteners in deals are actually important parts of their current teams like tyler hero we, we brought this up miami is the most recent team we did for that session you you sam and me i guess that'd be me not i um is like so tyler hero is an intriguing player you know somebody who could be desirable for an nba team to, like for a team to acquire however he's also an important part of the miami heat and so are they willing to swap him out for maybe somebody who's more established and i mean you could go there you could go tatum and brown being integral parts of the celtics matisse Thybul looking like the sixth maybe fifth man in philly and there just aren't as many of those intriguing young players who you know kind of like the eric bledsoe's of the world the guys who look when when he was on the clippers who look like they're going to be a good player but they're maybe a little bit blocked and they're they're on their way but they're not at the same timeline the top four teams this year just don't have many of those players yeah and and you know again like the lakers used them all already uh and that that uh um you know and 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 another guy who might be sort of like that would be like landry shamit and he's kind of a similar situation to hero right is he's 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 pretty, especially given their uh, the Clippers kind of dearth of of spot up shooting. Like he's he's a he's a pretty important piece there. So yeah, you're right. It's just again that's that uh, there, there isn't a lot of ways to dip into for these teams to upgrade without swapping out you know important parts of their rotation. And then the guys that are available, it seems like uh, aren't of sufficient caliber for to be worth the the risks of taking a piece of your rotation out i mean maybe if you know the the some of the the bigger name guys whether it's you know it's a uh, that have been mentioned around like a chris paul or a, a drew holiday like their contracts are so big that then you can't you know you can't it's pretty hard to trade young players for for drew holiday because how do you get to that how do you get to the number you, you know and then now because there aren't you know the 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 non-productive salaries on these good teams now to to you know to grease that deal so it's it's a it's almost we have a lot of we have a lot of stasis right now i think the best example of that is boston and so the celtics they're one of the few of these teams that actually does have draft assets they have that memphis pick which you know is is looking a little bit worse by the day as the grizzlies are doing well and this draft is still uninspiring from the people who know it better than i do but the Celtics have basically no matching salary. So there are only four players, sorry, five on Boston who make more than $5 million. You have Kemba Walker, not getting moved. Gordon Hayward, challenging because he makes 32-7 and all the other stuff involved. Marcus Smart at 12-6, maybe, maybe. And then Tatum and Brown, who they're not moving. Brown, they functionally cannot, and Tatum, they will not. So Boston... They have this draft asset. They have motivation. I mean, the the field is open enough that maybe conceptually they could add something which would make them more competitive. And I, we don't know where the East is going over the next couple of years, but maybe this is a pretty decent shot at it. Kemba's, you know, getting older. But it's hard for them to make a deal work because how many players are available for, let's say, $10 million, good enough to move the needle for them to justify giving up that pick and also available because sure there are players that good but they're not they're not going to be on the market right and and so it's it's how do they get to you know are the names that were bandied about earlier how do they get to miles turner and you know do you, would you would you swap hayward for miles turner you know and with, with whatever else you need to balance on on either side i mean regardless of the draft asset like would you even do that if you're boston I, you know, it's not an easy yes. If even if you would, even if that yeah, that is especially because we know how scarce wings are, and they don't yeah. really have a clear way to replace Hayward in the rotation. I mean, they could, and this is an important distinction between a starting closing five and a roster that they could, you know, plug Marcus Smart in. Then you so you close with Kemba, Smart, Tatum, Brown, and Turner. But who plays the rest of the minutes becomes a right. problem. Right. And can Turner play in every matchup in the playoffs? Like, I, 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 there isn't a team that's going to play Gordon Hayward off the floor. 
whereas I can, you know, it's 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 there there are matchups where, you know, you get into a series against against you know Miami. Uh, I can I can see situations where there's just nobody for for Miles Turner to guard, and you know, or, or that he's got to he's gonna have to the matchups work out such that he's got to come out to the elbows and the top of the key and pick pick up Bam Adebayo. And then they just kind of, you know, run their their vaguely Princeton-y stuff and, and endless backdoor layups with the only rim protector is standing 20 feet from the basket because he got to guard. He has to guard Bam Adebayo. Yeah, or against, uh, the, or against the Bucks, you don't want him a mile away guarding Brook Lopez. So then congratulations, is Miles Turner guarding Giannis? I mean that's that's sort of the, the sort of the blueprint, but I don't think is Miles Turner stout enough. To, I don't. To, I don't think so. To do that kind of Gasol Embiid kind of wall thing that that you know if you're talking about something that has been effective against him, it's it's been you know that the big guys with the with the with the physicality to not get you know knocked backwards by kind of the freight train Euro step. And yeah, I don't I don't think that that's I think that like you know the. Uh, you know we're bouncing around a little bit, but of the Indiana like big guys, like I've, I kind of feel like Sabonis can can almost do that better, and I don't think that that I don't think that matchup works either. But yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a real challenge. And I mean, another example, a name that we haven't brought up as much is Robert Covington. Covington would help a lot of teams. He's a defensively capable forward, though I do think that those who see him a defensively capable forward as a stopper. I don't think that's what Covington is, especially not against the most physically capable. He's more of a utility defender, kind of like Jason Tatum, actually, where he's better not on the main guy and just gumming up the works. And there's a place for that on a lot of different teams. And Covington is a willing three-point shooter, if not the most accurate all the time. And the problem is Minnesota could use a guy like that, too. And maybe not as much this year because they're falling off and the eternally questionable Carl Anthony Towns is now actually back in the lineup, which is great. But they, you know, they're they're probably too far out of it at this point unless they go on an absolute tear. So I think that's going to be a part of this too. Is it, so you have that component of it of the players because Covington's under contract for another couple of years. Maybe Minnesota thinks he can be a part of what they're where they're going moving forward. But then the other one is in the West, especially you have teams that could theoretically be sellers that are close enough to the playoffs where they might just not want to sell unless the price is exorbitant, which it won't be. So who are like? I mean, are you thinking San Antonio? As a seller, or what are you talking about? Yeah, as like a team that would that that possibly would be, um, you know, because you think like Memphis, they, do they have? I mean, Iguodala, but that's sort of a different thing. Yeah, but that's a different thing because he's not playing for them. But like, so yeah. for, for Memphis, Jay Crowder would be an option for the Pels. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that Drew Holiday is not going to be on the market, and I don't think JJ Redick is either. Maybe Redick is one of the situations where a team asks about him and if the, and they say eh, we're not like like we'll listen but not expecting to do it you know that sort of a thing um i think I mean, the, maybe I, like josh hart or Etwan moore somewhere yeah, maybe but but are either of those guys um you know the lakers could possibly well, and, use and, and, josh and, hart and gallinari i mean going yeah. back i mean in the preseason i thought gallinari was one of the most likely players to be traded in the entire league because okc they're rebuilding he's an expiring contract they can do a lot of different things there could help them get below the tax and while i think they could make they could make the playoffs even if they trade him for nothing tomorrow that's the benefit of being where the Thunder are right now. I believe they're seven games clear in the win column, six or seven clear of the eight of every every, every other team, and they'd have to fall past two of them to get out. But who? All, but then you have the other side of this. So the sellers, willingness of the sellers. But then who is falling all over themselves to get Gallinari? Again, I think he could help a number of different teams. He's a capable offensive forward, and he's flawed defensively. But he, you know, he helps add to your rotation. But as the Thunder. What is enough? I don't think that a decent second-round pick is enough to get off of that. Maybe a second-round pick and a player who we think could help you long-term, but who's offering that? And that's not even a first. And then on top of that, of course, there's you got to you get the, the salary matching and then yep. di- getting to the – so, yeah, exactly. These All of these – because there's the, the sort of the middle tier is so wide open – um and 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 you know some guys who we thought might have been like more movable salary pieces are important part of 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 teams with playoff aspirations rotations 
And also the deadline being earlier now, it creates this long gap for the buyouts. And there could be players. I don't. I don't think somebody like Aaron Baines is going to get bought out. But it could be a circumstance where the Suns think they're more competitive on February first than they think they are on February twenty first. And then that doesn't. It just makes things hard. And I mean, right now they're eighteen and twenty six. They're in the mix. I mean, whether that's sustainable or not, we'll have to see. But they dealt with injuries and everything else. And Devin Booker is, has shown growth. He wrote about that very well at The Athletic. I think that was last week. And what do they do here? Like, so so with Baines. <laughs> so this is so, – so to, to jump in there, this is like the pace at which things are moving like this time of year. That was yesterday. Oh, God, <laughs> it was. <laughs> it I know. It seems like forever ago. And it, it, that was yesterday. <laughs> But so, but do you get you get what I'm saying with Baines? Yeah. Is, and so you have the the what would it take to get him? Is anybody willing to pay that? And I think both of those are really challenging. I think Baines again could help a lot of different teams. Incidentally, one of them they're not allowed to reacquire him would be the Celtics. I think his he would be useful for them. But there are a lot of teams that could add Baines to their rotation and feel better about it. And I don't think any of them is going to cough it up because he doesn't move the needle enough for the title teams or enough for the tier two teams. And also this is where like the just the weirdness of where we are with, you know, with the contracts and stuff. Not to this is we're kind of we're kind of on on, on you and Nate's corner now, but it's it's, you know, Baines is is expiring contract and whoever would get him would only have like early bird rights. Right. And and uh, or would they have Correct me if I'm wrong, but they just have early birds, right? Hello? Did I lose you? No, I was looking it up. Oh. Uh, so I, I believe actually they would have full because what happened with Baines was he ended his previous contract with the Boston Celtics. And so he signed with them in 17 and then he signed with them in 18. So 17, 18, 18, 19, 19, 20, that would be full bird because he got traded. You retain rights in that circumstance. Okay. I think he would have full bird. I haven't run through it. I'm not. This is this is me off the cuff doing bird bird rights calculations. But I believe that it would be full, which is valuable for the Suns. I I feel like this this scenario has come up with players before. Yeah. uh, And um, so but here's another uh, I I was I thought a little bit also the 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 TJ Warren Suns revenge game just happened about how interesting all of that turned out. So. The Suns basically dumped T.J. Warren. T.J. Warren is doing very well for the Pacers. But they also got Aaron Baines in a salary dump from the Celtics, which also worked out well, which worked out well for the Suns. It's so weird. Uh. Yeah. So, but we're, that, that, that still leaves us with, you know, we're, we're all dressed up and, and worried that there's going to be nowhere to go at the deadline this year. Yeah. And, I mean, Dallas is another example. I could see them. I could see a lot of moves on the margins. Dallas has that the Barnes trade exception. Now they have a much greater need for a stopgap, stopgap plus center. Now that Dwight Powell, unfortunately, has the, has the Achilles injury. And I basically think they should treat it as he's out for this year and next. That's probably the... It's the rational kind of pathway yeah. to go down. and But but are they going to give up any sort of – not that they have a ton of them – premium asset to get a center when they already have all these other things and they have Kleba and Porzingis and everything else? But, they, but there are a lot of these kind of meh type of players who could could inspire some interest. I brought up this idea on – Nate and I did a Southwest preview pod which came out on Thursday morning about – Maybe if Mark Cuban's willing to spend the money, they could do something like Courtney Lee for Cody Zeller. And Zeller is really overpaid, you know, $15 million a year, not sure, you know, how much he moves the needle for a good team. But if it's Courtney Lee, the difference in cost this year is marginal, and Dallas was going to be over the cap next year. So maybe that sort of deal is the type of thing that happens. Yeah, that's not exactly, that's not exactly the uh, exciting uh <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but that was a big move at the deadlines. Yay. <laughs> for example, like, I mean, my expectation right now is I don't think an all NBA caliber player is getting moved. I could be wrong, but I don't expect it. Well, I mean, they kind of all already got traded over the summer. Right. And and or or resigned or all that. I mean, the consequence of a very wide open offseason like the super fun one we just had is that they generally lead to less going on right after it. This the the analog to this for me is in the NCAA tournament when there are, when there's a really upset heavy round. Usually the next round is less interesting because the teams that had the upsets just lose. And I think that's sort of what this is: is that you have all this turnover, and now the teams are stabilizing. They're trying to figure out what the heck they have, and in certain cases there are restrictions. Can't trade this guy, or it's functionally difficult. 
that that combined with the contract structures that we have, which fuel from the same thing that there was just a lot of guys that expired last year and everything else, that there just there isn't enough grease. And I think that's it's not a problem. It's just the way things are. Well, I mean, the the way I like to eat breakfast, not enough grease is definitely a problem. But yes, I I mean, considering the amount of words that we put on a George yeah, right. Clarkson for Dante Exum piece, maybe it is a little <laughs> bit of a problem. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I, I feel like uh, we've we've talked a while about something that that. We've talked a lot about nothing. It's it's almost like a Seinfeld episode well, uh, of the well, trade deadline. Plenty more to talk about with Seth, but first a message from betonline.ag. The Super Bowl matchup is set, including my San Francisco 49ers. They're facing the Kansas City Chiefs, but this is a weekend without football, so that means basketball takes center stage. You have some great college matchups and also in the pros, Lakers, Sixers, Clippers, Heat will be pretty exciting. Whatever you're into or if you want to make early wagers on the Super Bowl, you can do it at betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for your 50% sign-up bonus. Whether it's a game that you're going to be watching anyway and you just want to make it more interesting or you think you know something that the odds makers do not, you can do both of those things at betonline.ag. You can also check out in-game wagering, which is, is so interesting, something I've gotten into a little bit over the last little while. And they have a lot of a lot of other things. If you're into some other branch of sports, there's a lot that you can check out at betonline.ag. But make sure that if you go there and you're setting up an account that you use the Podcast One promo code that gives you a 50% sign-up bonus. Also, of course, tells them that you came from us, which is great for this show. So check out betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet all in one. It has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that could even store your Surface Pen. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash surfacepro8. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep the facility running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo and Maria in Miami, Jules in Minneapolis and Stan in central Indiana, taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with experienced branch staff at over 250 locations so you get the product you're looking for. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's transition to a lot about a very small sample size. Zion Williamson just played in his first regular season NBA game, and it looked a lot less remarkable before he scored 17 consecutive points in the fourth quarter. It is neither of our natures to go overboard with any single game or any single quarter, but what did you take away from night one? Um, I... There's, I don't think there's much that, that can happen in that one game to change your prior belief too much. I mean, I think it's it's obvious that his 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 conditioning and, and, and rhythm isn't isn't where it needs to be. I mean, I think anyone who watched him summer league preseason at Duke, uh, he's usually a little more active than than he was last night. Um, but at the same time, there's still there's still even before that big run in the fourth quarter, there were still a couple of wow moments. There was the, you know, the, the, the climbing all the way over, uh, was it, uh, Jacob, uh, yeah, Jacob Pertle to, yeah, to, to, to get a rebound. And then the, the frozen rope of a, of a, of a hit ahead pass for, for a layup. Um, it was, it was just kind of a wow play. There's one in the first half where he kind of faced up on Aldridge and just like did a little rip through move and, and exploded by him baseline. And, and just those, those few kind of instances of just like the easy shot out of a cannon athleticism. It's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be fine. Um, and then it's just a matter of him getting his timing and his, his wind back. It's not, you know, they, they, I don't want to talk too much about the, the, the broadcast cause I'm being accused of being, you know, old man yelling clouds about it. Not that I ever do stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, they, you know, they made some mention of, of, of his weight and yeah, maybe sure, but it's much more just the conditioning, just basketball shape. Like I hasn't, like hasn't played in four months, five months and you know, it's just, it, it, a lot of kind of the the he wasn't really very good defensively last night uh, but that's just you know if you've ever not played for a while and then played you're just you're just heavy footed and so those those instant 
oh, I see what's happening. I got to go. Plays just don't happen when you're when you're heavy footed. And that's something that I think, you know, give it two weeks. And if it still looks like that, then maybe worry. But I'm but again, you don't uh, you don't do the kind of things he did in college and in, in preseason um, without having some degree of awareness and, and burst and stuff like that. The play that sticks in my mind was also involved Jaka Pirtle. It was the play when Pirtle blocked Zion on the left side of the basket. And somehow Zion caught the ball and was on the right side of the basket before anybody could react. And he, you know, that broad jump that he has, the jump stop, when Nate uses the broad jump, uh, the jump stop, which he didn't actually use that much in this game, are special. And they're special among freak athletes too. Like he, he, is, he can do those sorts of things. And I think... As you said, the idea of being heavy-footed, being a little bit rusty, you know, it's, there, there's a big jump that every player goes through into the NBA. And, I mean, he played in the preseason and in summer league a little bit. But those are different things. And those adjustments combined with coming back from a surgery is a lot. And I think that unless they waited long enough for him to be 100%, which he is, at 100% and like, you know, physically and also non-rusty physically, then that probably would have been a long time from now. And they obviously don't want that. And it's totally fine. That's why you have to pull him in the fourth quarter and all that jazz. But I thought that the signs overall were positive. And the passing, as you brought up, I think that was material to me because it was something that really impressed me on film. And it's, he's just a tantalizing player. And he, Zion is tough because he's, a challenging fit on both ends of the floor. He's to me, he's best with the ball in his hands and that's harder mechanically to do for a guy, his size. And then defensively at this point, he's probably a man without a country and that, that could change. I hope and expect that it will in time. So fitting him into a team, any team, much less one like this new Orleans squad that has a lot of really different players on it was always going to be a challenge. Yeah. I I do think, I mean, kind of the the difference between being a, a without a you know as you say a man without a country defensively and being really versatile i mean i think that's just a where you set the bar i mean i think the in shape version of him is much more on the versatile defender side than on the the the, the no place to go side so again i think that that's that's we're going to you know for the people who are high on his potential that's a big part of it is the ability to to you know guard multiple different scenarios and situations well uh and when he's you know doesn't doesn't have his 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 full capabilities because of of his wind uh the you just don't see that yet so i think that's going to be that that part's going to be a a maybe a work in progress for the next couple of weeks but i think that's the kind of thing that we actually should expect to be a, a again if you're an optimist you expect that to be a strength rather than a weakness there's also a corresponding element on the other end of the floor, and it's part of why I've been so high on Zion throughout this process, and a little bit different than somebody like Anthony Davis, who I loved as a prospect, where the question, the, the question which is basically at the heart of why I think Zion's special is, what positional archetype do you have guarding him? Because I think we saw it a little bit last night that when a team puts a center on him, Zion has more ball handling, he's faster than a lot of those guys, and he has good passing instincts, so if he generates help, if he generates churn, then he can do something with that. And if a team puts a smaller player on him, you know, the, the idea, let's say like somebody like Kristaps Porzingis, where you put somebody smaller on him because Porzingis doesn't have the tools in his toolbox to punish those players, Zion does. He, he really does, not only as a, you know, because he's such a big body and he's good at backing guys down, but also because he's a good passer. And those things fit together. And there was not enough of a sample in Wednesday's game to like prove that or anything. But I think we got a couple moments that were reminders of why that is the case. Sure, I actually thought for a moment that you were going to, you're you're going to go where, like, what do you put a guy like Kristaps Porzingis on him, and and then uh, doesn't he just put like Porzingis in, in, under the basket and and you know go through them, <laughs> but that's not where you're going with it. Um, it's just, just that almost illustrates that, that the, you know, some of the, 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 the post up foibles like that, the, the play you, you mentioned about the, the portal play. Part of the reason that worked is he was able to just like basically run straight at portal, uh, stick a shoulder into him, reverse pivot. And okay, I am, I've got you sealed behind me six feet from the basket. 
And yeah, Purdo was able to block the initial shot, but he's already so deep that the 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 second effort is a layup. Um, and that's you know that's the contrast that with a guy who's tall and skinny who. Well, I'm going to reverse pivot and you're going to bump me in the back and I'm going to catch the ball at 17 feet. And now what happens? Um, and so that's again, that's <laughs> and Zion seems like he's probably got the ability to, you know, get deep position on pretty close to anybody. Um, you know, maybe not like a, you know, maybe not like an Embiid or a, or a Gasol or, or a really big thick center like that. But Anyone else up and down the positional spectrum, like you can always you can go there and and get churn, as you said, uh, in a defense, because I don't think there's a defense in the in the world that if a if a guy catches the ball with one or two feet in the paint is not going to react to that. Exactly. And if and shooting four of four, making 100 percent of his threes is not going to continue necessarily moving forward, considering it doesn't appear Zion hit four threes in his life in any other game. But if he can get to a jump shot that teams have to respect, that creates another set of opportunities. I mean, Zion, one of the ways that teams try to attack players who can't shoot is just by sagging off them. But A, Zion could be a really destructive screener just by virtue of his massive humanity. But also, if he can combine that with handling the ball, as he can, and combining that with potentially some sort of jump shot, then it, it will take some work, and I think Alvin Gentry is, is a pretty good fit for how to create that offense, but I do think that it is creatable with the right supporting talent and the right scheme. So this is this an interesting thing we bring up about the jump shot. Um, it's you know it's not it, he is not a good shooter. He's not a non-shooter. The big thing for him, it's a little bit like Ben Simmons uh, in that uh, the free throw shooting is actually going to be a pretty big swing skill there because um, even even to a greater extent than Simmons, I think, is the issue with kind of giving space to Zion is that lets him get ahead of steam and go to the basket and he'll go to the free throw line a ton. And if he's shooting, you know, he shot 64 percent in college is one year. That's probably just good enough where that that's that that is I mean, that is good enough so where where that unto itself is a good offense. And that's a way to to uh, take advantage of that kind of of, of defensive inattention. And also, uh, unlike Simmons, who occasionally seems like he doesn't want to get fouled because he's not a good shooter. Uh, I don't think we've ever really seen that from Zion. So if he's if he's willing to get to the line, you know, 12 times a night and go seven of 12, um, you know, I, I don't think you can profitably guard him that way. Another player who is who has long been sabotaged by appearing to not want to go to the free throw line is his current teammate Lonzo Ball. And Ball has gotten a little bit more confident there. I thought I thought he actually showed some strides in the Spurs game as well. And it can it can infect the rest of a player's game in so many ways. And I, I don't, I'm not as worried about that with Zion, both from seeing him play in college and a little bit in high school. But it is a very good thing to note, not only in terms of defensive strategy, but in terms of offensive mentality. Yeah, I, I, exactly. That, that just you know the the whole notion of of if you take penetration away as a threat, um, because either you can't finish or if you get fouled you can't make free throws and you know you can't make free throws so you don't try to get fouled, and then that affects your finishing because instead of like you know seeking bodies out and and kind of dictating how the how you're going to try to finish you're kind of fading away and and you know it's it's one of the things that they 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 teach is that like some of the one of the best ways to to you know go at a shot blocker is to literally go at the shot blocker if you actually give them space to take up then they become even you know in a way even bigger whereas if you go right at them you kind of you take away some of their ability to 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 be big um, that, that that sounds nonsensical, but it makes sense well, in my head. Well, it also ties in with one of the worst things you can do against them is basically give them the victory without even trying. And I was, during the Zion game, I was at Chase Center for Warriors Jazz when every single Warrior was terrified of Rudy <laughs> Gobert. And then you're, and this is something that you did some really good work on now in Calculus and various other people as well, is that the the impact many times defensively of a center is not by the shots they block, but by the shots they change and the shot decisions they change. Yeah, no, it's 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 very rare for someone to uh, the situations where if you get the ball close to the basket and it's not a good decision to to try to score. Um, for in most situations, that's like even the most heavily contested attempt is still. 
uh, an above league average shot. Um, with except like you're a small guy and Rudy Gobert's there, <laughs> or you know you're a small guy and Brooke Lopez is there, or one of these elite, well, or Joel Embiid, one of these elite rim protectors are there, and that kind of changes the that almost changes the entire way you play defense. You you, you that's what it's meant when you when you hear. Uh, commentators talk about a defense funneling guys to a shot blocker is you you know what we're going to take the jumper away because you can beat us to the basket and it doesn't matter because that's a bad shot also because uh, our big guys back there um and that's that's you know uh that is a a tremendous floor raiser for a defense to have a guy like that this allows you to be much more aggressive um and aggressive without necessarily requiring a lot of help and rotation um on 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 shooters bucks here (laughs) and and i was thinking about that and the idea of funneling and everything else and as much as i like him as a prospect is it possible that that could be a reason that we're overrating bam Adebayo's defensive potential a little bit because while he is good at many things that is not really his strength so you have to build a defense differently, and you can't. There are many ways to build a successful defense, but one that is pretty tried and true right now is so different from what Miami does. I think – so Bam is an interesting case because th- this this was held true in college as well. He wasn't as – he wasn't the, quite the dominant rebounder, rim protector you might have expected in college, but I think that that's his – in a way, his mobility and versatility is playing against him in that way because he can get all over the court and guard. You're tempted to have him go all over the court and guard, which is great. It, but it is, it does put him in different spots than these 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 traditional kind of paint bound centers who are, you know, basically playing as a goalie. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you are, uh, you know, it's it's almost more of a, a libero role if, if 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 you know you remember some some old school soccer uh, uh, fans might remember where teams like sweeper would uh, wait I can start back here and then I can come into play and that's almost like Adebayo plays that way defensively whereas you know the, some of these other guys are much more stay at home types and so but that 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 allows him to you know put pressure on offenses elsewhere on the floor. But it necessarily means he's around the basket less and so is able to affect shots at the rim less. And then also he's, you know, Adebayo is probably about 6'9", and he's got decent wingspan, but he's still about 6'9". Uh, and so he's probably not, even when he's there, he's probably not quite the deterrent that some of these real Goliaths are. Yeah, and I, I love Bam, and there are ways to make – any system work Miami has has done well defensively, not actually in some ways as well as I as I expected. Something we talked about in the strategic planning session in terms of they're below the top ten and they're getting some intense opponent three point shooting luck. Well, actually, let's just use this as a transition. Um, the so you and I and Sam Vecini in various different configurations have been talking about team building and the league for a long time and. I think it was probably you and I originally, though honestly the three of us were talking about it again in various configurations, just decided to take some of those conversations, flesh them out a little bit, and turn them into pieces for The Athletic. Yeah, it's it's been uh, – th- those have been fun. And those I think have really informed both uh, – all, all three of our opinions that uh, – this, this might be a quiet deadline just because we're we're spending you know thousands and thousands of words trying to construct deals that make sense and kind of uh, who says no? Well, that team says no. What if we change it this way? Well, then I say no, uh, and and it's just just finding how many more obstacles there are to kind of natural partnership deals than than there maybe have been in times in the past. Very true, and I mean, we ran into that a lot in, in the Miami stuff, and when I'm getting down to Thomas Sadoransky trades, you know you're you're digging deep. <laughs> um, but it also, for me, it's been clarifying as a way to talk about the discussions that go into really planning out where a team should go. So with Miami, for example, th- that was the one that was just released, we had to start with how good are they actually, because that informs how aggressively you go after the present, whether you focus on the future. And I mean, so we talked about flexibility and all that, but, but I, and and that crew, there was a real discussion there in terms of, is their defense for real? Is their offense for real? How does it work against high level opponents? You had some really good stats on that. And 
it's I, I I'm happy that it's getting you know it's been in the discourse to an extent before, but it's I'm I'm really happy that we can that we can put that in and yeah I mean I guess if people are willing to read the six to eight thousand words that these pieces are turning into <laughs> then that's something but a part of it is these conversations if we you were say in the heat front office that's how you have to do it too because you you can't just start at what about Robert Covington you have to be like well what would that do for us where are we now. No, I mean this. You know, we the, the, our, our heat piece was. I'm, I'm looking at it now. Was seven thousand five hundred thirty six words. Um, the equivalent of that in discussion time for the trade deadline in an actual front office is several multiples of that. And you know, looking at um, you know in in far more granular detail of the the nuance of of you know that what what any any particular idea would do your cap sheet like what uh you know planning out you know at this point you know planning out like what does what do we think tyler harrow's extension is going to look like in three years like just ballparking that just to see where we are like what are we gonna do uh, like what do we how do we feel about keeping kendrick nunn and duncan robinson around what does that what does that cost um, what you know? What what is our what is our kind of what what's the state of our discussions about you know Justice Winslow? What you know all of these things, you know feeding in together. And then then on top of that, it's you know you have a uh, a, a a sense of 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 uh, all right. Are we you know are is is Goran Dragic a piece of our of our um, plans going forward? And then what are the pros and cons of that? If it's you know. Okay, if if he's not going forward, uh, is it worth keeping him around this year, or are we <laughs> are we better off, you know, putting him in a deal to do something or other? And then, you know, the just all of these permutations are just you know fold back in on themselves endlessly, and and that's kind of that's that's, that's what you do in the uh, in the you know the I don't know the the two to two months leading up to the deadline. You know, you have a pretty decent idea of where you are as a team pretty quickly into the season. And then there's and then okay now it's mid December, <laughs> what do we do for the next six weeks? Um, and yeah, you scout college games and blah blah blah. But it's also like figuring this kind of stuff out. And then so when it comes time to, uh, and John Hollinger and I talked about this in our in our conversation that, uh, last week, this week, last week, I think it was this week. It's all it all runs together still. Um, but you you, uh, you you've done that preparatory work, and now you have a base of okay. Here's about where we think we are. Here's about what we need. What's out there? That how does what's out there match our needs and uh, assets? And and you know which parts are we most willing to compromise on? So you know that's so we went long on those, but you know that's that's a fraction of the time that's actually spent on these on these decisions. And it's also, I mean, another important part of this, just due to the nature of conversations, not that the information is held throughout the organization, but probably with one person, is that while a lot of trades and conversations are surprising to even, you know, members of the media, once a trade is announced, those those can be, though they are not always, built on things that have been discussed before, you know, maintaining relationships and all that sort of stuff. And also, one of the this, this came up recently. The ways to predict things that are going to happen is by looking at pre-existing general manager trade relationship type stuff because teams that are comfortable that don't get swindled or whatever they're they're they end up doing more business together because they're because they they're talking more. Yeah, no, these these uh, in general these things do not come together on a whim. They uh, they 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 are are the. You know, usually subject to to lengthy preparatory conversations. That's before even any kind of concrete offers are are, are out on the table. So there's just a, there's just a lot of of kind of of swirling around and throwing stuff up against walls and and whiteboarding and erasing and all that stuff that goes on. Uh, and then and then you realize no, we're nowhere, and you start over again, uh, which is which is kind of the experience we've had uh, doing these preview pieces for the deadline. It is, and and also the the thing like I mean we had people I, there was somebody in, in my my mentions recently asking if we're going to do one of these for the Pelicans and, and they are an interesting team but my instinct on it was I don't want to do them soon because I need to learn a lot more and that can sometimes be a challenge too I mean Zion is an extreme of a mid season addition but there can be them all the time and knowing what you have is an extremely important part of deciding where to go and that can be as basic as what is this guy 
I do well? What do you want to put next to them? Or it could even be, do we know how good this player is? Do we know where he's going to be in three years? I think that more mistakes and bigger mistakes are made in the self-assessment process than in looking at what other teams have. I think, you know, over overvaluing, misvaluing, uh, what you have overstating where your team is relative to contention, uh, overestimating the, the the length of your window, um, all, all of these things are you know there's there's kind of some natural cognitive biases that that play into all these things, but those mistakes are the ones that 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 tend to get teams in trouble and not just in trouble in in terms of like making a bad deal at one time, but in terms of of locking a franchise in to uh to oh wait how did we get here what's our way out which is you know kind of a, a you know a, a good way to tease the fact that the next one of these that we're working on is for the Detroit Pistons who've kind of who uh you know it's not they they certainly aren't in a disastrous situation like maybe the Knicks have found themselves a time where they're terrible and their cap their their cap sheet is is befouled for for several years hence but like you know the by the various moves you know a couple million extra here an extension that was too rich there uh, uh going all in for Blake Griffin and then him breaking down physically you know all of these things kind of uh rolled together means a team that is is nowhere and doesn't have a ton of of immediate future upside. Yeah, there's a, another challenge. Nate and I recorded, but it has not yet been released. It'll be released around the same time as this, our young cores at rankings for, uh, for Dunked On. And something we talked about towards the end was the difference between an empty cupboard and a full cupboard. And how, if it, like, there are ways to get, you know, like kind of more replacement level and above replacement level talent, you know, for the mid-level exception or things like that. But building out what will become the foundation for a successful team, however a team defines success, you know, that could be consistent playoffs, that could be getting a banner, making a conference finals, whatever that is. It's extremely hard to do, first and foremost. It is also almost always takes a lot of time. And I think that was, the, in some ways, the part of the process that I hope was the best for the discourse is that remember how long it took the Sixers to build up that cupboard. And there, there were a few misdraft picks, just like there are for any team. But, you know, they were bad for a while. And there are teams like the Rockets that can be the exception that proves the rule. And they were able to get a superstar for non-superstar pieces. But those those trades are few and far between. And most teams, you know, like up with the Pistons, like that's going to be something that comes up. And at least my part of the write-up is it's going to take a while. Yeah. No, and then but then the flip side is there. there's, you know, this and I'm hardly the first to to make this point. But, uh, you know, then there's then then there's there's something Memphis. They get like kind of bad for a year or two. Uh, And then, oh, wait, we have Jaron Jackson, John Morant, uh, Brandon Clark, D'Anthony Melton, Dylan Brooks and all the cap space. Let's go (laughs) like that's, you know, that's sometimes it just sometimes just works out that way. And it's and and, you know, their new front office has done done some smart things. But at the same time, like. You know, okay, we got the second pick in a two-player draft. Uh, we, you know, we we uh, Jaron Jackson is hitting the the high range of his of his potential, especially as a shooter. Um, the 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 questions that people had about Brandon Clark's, um, you know, uh, pr- uh, college productivity translating to the NBA, given his kind of positional weirdness, appear to be resolving in our favor. Like, you know, it's that that's you know, you 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 take you you take what you hope are smart gambles and then you look like a genius if they all work out but it didn't have to go that way right as an example here the teams with the three worst records last season Knicks Cavs Suns how differently would the conversation look around any of those teams if they had gotten the number one or the number two picks right but yeah I think I think even just that like you know take the number one pick out even just the number two pick like how how much different do any either of those teams look and do we feel about their their future if they have John Morant right now exactly like, and, and not only getting a, a top for Memphis getting a top two pick in a two player draft a two player draft that had a better two players than it looks like from what I've heard this year does and you know getting and it's not even like the Grizzlies got bad they were thirty three and forty nine they just won the lottery along with the Pels and that's 
kudos to them. And also I, I want to give both those front offices a lot of credit for making good moves on the margins. I thought that the way Memphis treated their trade exceptions and, and basically valued the spending power they had was really well done. David Griffin extracted basically the maximum for Anthony Davis that he could have. So they did a lot of other things that worked out well. If but, only he had held up for Kuzma. Oh, yeah. Kuzma, Kuzma <laughs> would be a great fit with this Pelicans team. And yeah. and so I, I think that there is an imp- – which also, like, think about the hilarity if my theory of the case is right, that the Lakers, they probably asked for Kuzma, and the Lakers are like, oh, no, let's give up extra first to get rid of to, – to keep Kuzma. And Dave Griffin could have gone, sweet. <laughs> like, you know, basically, like, we got what we wanted because you valued Kuzma more. Um, because he was the one who didn't make sense of salary filler and everything else. And, yeah, so, I mean, the Pelicans would be a, a positive story. They were a positive story before Zion even came to the fore. They were, you know, in, in playoff contention in the West. How, however, we're defining the value of that when it's gunning for, like, a 38-win season. But they would look really different if they hadn't moved from the seventh best odds to the number one pick. And there is an element of that that is in play. Also, it's very interesting to see how that how you know lottery reform affects the way teams think about all these things and it's it's a real challenge and i mean p- part of the joy of sports is that there are, there are a lot of different forms of uncertainty there is the uncertainty of who's going to win the draft lottery there's the uncertainty i'll use the pelicans for a bunch of these like that Brandon Ingram you know like there were people who thought when he was pretty good and he was young that all of us, that he's guaranteed to start up and then many of those people were probably disappointed with how things went. And then now that he's blossomed more significantly more than before, that that was uncertain too. And and it's like that's part of what makes sports fun, but it also in some ways is p- part of what makes our jobs challenging because like Victor Oladipo becoming the most improved player and all those rides that he did, sometimes you just have to appreciate the ride for what it is. Yeah, this is so I'm glad you used the term uncertainty. There's a there's a we uh, on uh on, on my podcast with uh, Dave DeFore and Mo Dacchio, we uh, we played a clip from uh, from Paul DePodesta, who's the v- vice president of something for the for the the Cleveland Browns. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure exactly how like titles in football should, organizations should I just call translate. Him, should I call him previously the guy who Jonah Hill played in Moneyball? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's and that's just very unkind to 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 poor to poor Paul, who was you know the captain of the Harvard football team, and here here you get played by Jonah Hill now. So, uh, um, but he had, when they were, when they were announcing their, their, uh, their new coach who has an NBA connection, who is the, who is the, the son of Ed Stefanski, who is the, the, the interim until he finds someone better GM of the Pistons. Um, uh, that's a search that might go on for a while. Uh, but, but in the process of announcing that he had about a 40 second clip where he's talking about like the, how to best operate in uncertainty. And that's the way we, we have to think about these things because it's not, you know, you don't know, you know, like there's, there's risk factors for all these guys. Like there's you, there was given, given his, his, uh, his injury history, just at Duke, there was injury risk with Zion and, and maybe, you know, having the, having the surgery right on the eve of the season, maybe that's, you know, rolling snake eyes a little bit there, but that's still, that's a that's certainly a known risk and probably a higher than average risk for him, but doesn't mean you don't take him first. It just means that that's part of the uncertainty of of okay, how will this eighteen year old progress as an NBA player and and just finding ways to give yourself the best chance for all that to work out. I mean, if everything works out exactly as you planned it, then there's no problem. But you know that that how often does that happen? How you know? How often does do do things fall neatly into place exactly how you you uh, you hoped and wished they would? As an example of that, I mean, I'm guessing there was a part of Danny Ainge that thought when they got all those really high picks from the Nets that some of those would be converted into and M- like maybe an MVP caliber player. Maybe he thought they got that in Kyrie Irving, and then Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown end up being important parts of a team that, in a weird year, made the Eastern Conference Finals and that is competitive right now. In, in the Eastern Conference. And, you know, it, it's not exactly how his plan was going to go, but he had the vo- the versatility in it to, to make it work and to and that he actually believed in his board. I mean, the, the Fultz-Tatum trade is a pretty amazing one that I heavily criticized him for at the time and was, for, for complicated reasons, completely wrong. I mean, well, were you wrong or just has it worked out? Like, that's, that's the hard part in evaluating these decisions in retrospect. Yeah, that's true. Were, I mean, you, were you wrong or has it, has, you know... 
what you know again well, so here's what the I'll hard say. part tatum about evaluating be- this tatum in- is better than i thought he would be so that part of it okay yeah that part of it and, and the full stuff i think at least it was unforeseeable in ways that i consider un- unforeseeable i know there were people who had concerns about his makeup and stuff but i don't know it, it's it, his situation is so anomalous that i don't really know what to take from it and that's and that's a fairly extreme example obviously oh, it's, but, it's about as extreme as it gets right but you know it's go back to the decision that was made at the time and and you know w- would you were they right to to make that decision at the time knowing what was knowable then mm-hmm. i don't know well and remember um, that the king's pick which was an important part of that became a lot less valuable right after the fact too though right and this this is a theory that i have now which is unprotected picks are more valuable about a year before they actually convey. So like, you know, and, and the Kyrie thing didn't work out as well as well as they'd hoped and, and all that. But really, because what happens is there's this idea of, oh, it could be anything. And then when once you get closer to it actually conveying, usually teams have that much time to figure it out. They'll get a little bit closer. And, and you know, it's not going to every time happen. You know, the Kings did, were better last year in terms of record than they probably will be this year. And that's not going to happen every time. But I don't know. It's 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 an idea that I think is worth pursuing. Sure. No. Uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you. I, I've ended podcasts on this a lot this year. We're you know two weeks from the trade deadline, but that's not the only thing on our minds. What are you looking for? You know, you can prioritize whatever you want for writing purposes, for podcasting, obviously as well. What you know, just as somebody who watches the league for a living, what are you? What teams are you focusing on? Are there any players? probably other than Zion that you're going to be focusing on over the next two weeks to a month? Um, trade deadline related. There's a couple of teams in the East that, you know, I think Miami, Boston are the kinds of, I don't want to say one piece away, but like you fill a hole and they suddenly become a much more intriguing, like playoff uh, foible type team. So just heading into the deadline, seeing if, if – and, and it doesn't seem super likely, but if either of those teams are able to kind of pull it off. Uh, and then in the West, kind of seeing if a team like like Denver, like if, if the uh, seeming emergence of Michael Porter Jr. gives them kind of a, another level – if if uh, Utah's found something, or they're just on a they're they're on a nice run that's possibly schedulated, um, uh, seeing if those teams can can you know solidify themselves into that 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 if not tier one status at least kind of tier one B. Those are kind of the the things I'm looking at, and then it's just you know for the for the the you know the the top three and a half to four teams, it's much more like who stays healthy. And then, and then, you know, I, it's going to be, it's, it's hard to feel like we're learning a ton about any of those teams. Maybe, maybe Philly figures something out about how to, how to have, you know, Simmons and Embiid coexist in a way that makes their offense make more sense. Um, I'm not holding my breath on that, but maybe that, like, that's the one thing that, that is, that, that's kind of out there that seems like it would, you know, raise not necessarily their ceiling, but raise their their floor and median outcome some. So those, I think, those are the things I'm I'm looking at more. Um, and then just kind of seeing if uh, uh, some of the progress we've seen in some of these some of these young guys is real. Is Devin Booker gonna gonna play the way he's played thus far all year? Is he gonna be able to maintain you know that efficiency despite you know still having a really high usage? Is Brandon Ingram is his shooting gonna tail off? Is he going to that was that was kind of one of the takeaways from last night. Is he kind of struggled last night, um, and this is one game you don't want to make too much of it. But you know there there was there people were asking the question going into the game, uh, how is Brandon Ingram gonna going to fit back in now that Zion's back on the team? And Zion's not like super ball dominant, so it it doesn't necessarily have to be a problem, but maybe it will be. Um, so so, but just seeing if like you know the guys who seem to have taken a step up can maintain it for a full season so i think those are the things that i'm i'm mostly looking for i'll echo a lot of those i mean for me especially of the ones you talked about the jazz and the pelicans are going to be be notable the jazz how much of this is real how do they integrate mike conley now that he's healthy it becomes harder to you know play him less how do they reconcile this lineup stuff and then for me the the other big one the two big ones one Detroit, that's not as much on the court because the product is not super watchable right now. But 
How do they approach this deadline? We're going to talk about that in a strategic planning session coming up they're because they're one of the few unambiguous sellers, but they have some important decisions to make. I think that's going to be telling for Stefanski and, and the front office and Dwayne Casey doing extent as well. And then the other one is Memphis. And so for me, how good are they? How much of this is repeatable? How do they handle the deadline? Not only in terms of somebody like Iguodala, who's not playing for them, but Jay Crowder. And they have a couple of pending restricted free agents that are going to be challenging negotiations, though this might be exactly the right year to have them. And how aggressively – so so because when a team has a lot of flexibility – I've talked about this before. I get obsessed with teams like where it looks like Memphis is going because when a team is better than anticipated and has a lot of flexibility, it can go really, really well or it can go really, really badly. And I thought Memphis was going to be poor – was going to be bad enough that – those decisions weren't going to be as difficult. But if they're on the fringes of playoff contention, if Ja looks like he's the real deal, then this gets a lot harder, and I'm, they might become a large focus of mine in my work in April, May, and June. Like you, it's 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 sort of a cliche. You can't skip steps, um, and then so determining like which which you know I'm going to run the metaphor into the ground a little bit, but which step are they actually on? Uh, you know, if they, you know, if they're on, if they're on step two of the ladder, then they can't go to step four. But if they're actually on step three, then that's the next step. Uh, and kind of figuring out which one of those it is is uh, that's always tough. And we've definitely, I feel like we've seen more teams. Uh, again, kind of optimism bias gets the better of more teams uh, than than not in in that sort of situation. Yeah, and, it, and of, the middle rungs are the hardest because. Yeah. The margins can be confusing. It can be more on luck and random chance. And because, especially if a team draft, a front office drafted those players, they're going to want to believe the best of it because they're the ones who chose them in the first place. Yeah. No, but but that's and that's that's, uh, that's again the, the the hard part for Memphis is okay. We know John Morant is good, but like what? How how good are we penciling him in for? Are we are we thinking he's a he's top ten player in the NBA? Good, top twenty five. Good, top forty five. Good. Like those are those are meaningful differences. And you know, yeah, he's got. I mean, he's got some equity to get all the way to the top. But we're like being really honest with ourselves. If 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 we're Memphis, where's the most likely spot that he ends up? And that has just a huge impact on how they. On how they perceive things. I mean, if they if they think he is an uh, all NBA first team level player, like you do different things. Um, I think that would be a pretty big call <laughs> to make at this point. Um, and you know, it, it, it certainly it could be. But I but man, you got to that's a that, that penciling penciling him in to be that level of player going forward would be would be a step. And and I think a lot of teams take that step and then just. You know, law of, of of averages. Most of them are wrong, and then you know you're overextended for a, a 48 win team, uh, and that's you know that that's why you see these teams rise up and never really get over the top so much. Yeah, it is a it is a definite challenge and one that we'll, we'll keep an eye on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Seth for taking the time. You can, of course, read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Nerder She Wrote podcast that he does, which was talked about a little bit on the show. And you can follow him on Twitter at Seth Partnow, S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Love having him on. And this is a a good time to have him on to think about the the deadline. And, And we talked a little bit. You should read the piece they did with John Hollinger about what it's like in a front office, actual front office for the deadline. I'll probably focus a little bit less on that for uh real GM radio moving forward until the deadline actually passes. And I'll probably do something on that. We'll, we'll see how it works out. Um, but you can get, of course, get that dunked on. We did previews, division by division of the big potential moves, movers and shakers and all that kind of stuff. And we will do the mock off season, the mock trade deadline. Sorry, we do the mock off season too, but mock trade deadline will be soonish. And you can look forward to that. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode. That's very important for metrics and everything like that. And to get into rhythm because Real Jam Radio comes out at different times each week. It depends on my availability and guest availability. So can't say, oh, Thursdays, I'm going to 
check in, see you, see if it's there. It's going to be at different times each week. You can also spread the word. Word of mouth is very much appreciated if that's a single episode or the series in general. If there's somebody you think would like it, please share that. And leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast, whatever you're choosing, that is always much appreciated in a way that people can help find the show and help other people find the show. But the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. BetOnline.ag and that Podcast One promo code gets you a 50% sign-up bonus and tell them that you came from us. There will, as always, be a Real GM Radio episode next week. I do not know exactly what the focus of it will be. I have a few ideas in mind and have a few guests that I've reached out to and we'll see if any of them can commit. If you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise I'll respond, though, though I do try to, but I have them go to a separate place in my inbox and I read all of them So because it's very important to me. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Microsoft Surface Pro 8 has the power of a laptop and the versatility of a tablet, all in one. This thin and adaptable device has a touchscreen and a newly designed signature keyboard that can even store your Surface Pen. Surface Pro 8 is Microsoft's most powerful pro yet. Show the world how you stand out with Surface Pro 8. Check it out at surface.com slash Surface Pro 8. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep the facility running no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo and Maria in Miami, Jules in Minneapolis and Stan in central Indiana, taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with experienced branch staff at over 250 locations so you get the product you're looking for. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.